good to be with everyone this evening. My name is Joseph Bianco. I'm the assistant pastor at City Reform Presbyterian Church, and I'd like to welcome you. Um, if you look in the bulletin on page 5, you see we're we'll hearing from Psalm 39 this evening. And um, this psalm is an individual lament. It's uh, a psalm of David written by Jedithin. Um And Jedithin, uh was a chief musician, which you can read about elsewhere uh, in the Old Testament. And this is a pretty, I'll just be honest, this is a pretty difficult psalm. This is um, not what maybe you would choose to preach on, but we believe in preaching the whole Psalter, and this is God's very word for us and has a word for us this evening. So I encourage you to to hear it and receive it. Um, Let me read this psalm, and then our response will be, because this is the word of God, thanks be to God. So hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 39. To the choir master... To Jedithin, a psalm of David. I said, I will guard my ways, that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle, so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail. And my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. O Lord, make me know my end. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few handbreadths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth. For it is you who has done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears. For I am a sojourner with you, a guest Like all my fathers, look away from me, that I may smile again before I depart, and am no more. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you indeed for your word. Lord, we pray that your inerrant, infallible, inspired word would enlighten our hearts and our minds, that we may clearly perceive our sin and understand the heights of your grace through the works of Christ. Father, would you apply this word even through my weakness, using even that weakness for your glory and your purposes. Father, we are so dependent on you. Work by the power of your spirit alone. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I remember a time when I was a little boy, I stole a pocket knife uh, from my dad's computer drawer. Uh, And my father always kept a few pocket knives in his computer drawer, and I'm not sure exactly how old I was, um, but I, I was little enough to think that if I took one, he wouldn't notice that it was gone and missing from his drawer. So my brother and I took this pocket knife, and we went out into the woods uh, behind our house, and we played with it, and we did things little boys do, like sharpen sticks and uh, whittle and play with a knife inappropriately. Um, But when we were done with this pocket knife, instead of returning it to the drawer, we thought it would be a better idea 
to hide it in the woods under a rock so that we could have access to it in the future. Because, you know, this makes sense to, to little boys. Um, so if you get, a few days go by and we don't hear anything from my dad, uh, thinking we got away with it, and then we're sitting at dinner and my dad looks at us, he's, there's three boys, I'm the oldest, and he says, boys, and he'd always call us boys like when we were in trouble. And he said, have you seen my pocket knife? It's missing. And of course, we said no. So another week goes by, and I kid you not, in about three acres of woods behind my parents' house, my dad finds the pocket knife under the rock that we hid in the woods as he was walking to church. So to this day, I do not know how he found it, but he did find it, and I, what I do know is the punishment that I got for not only stealing his knife, but lying to him about stealing it. You see, I was afraid to go to my father with my sin. Uh, my dad was not the most gentle man, but the main reason I did not go with, to him when I was asked um, was, not, I was, afraid, it was not that I was afraid of his response, but it was because actually I wanted to hold on to this knife. I wanted to use it. Um, he'd explicitly told me that I was not old enough yet to use a pocket knife, and it made it all that much more enticing. Um, in our text today, we have this unique insight into David wrestling with his sin. So first, David hides his sin. He keeps it in, he bottles it up, but then it bursts out, and then finally in verse 7, he goes to his heavenly father and he confesses his transgressions. So for us, it can be scary to go to God with our sin. But unlike earthly fathers who make mistakes in dealing with our sin, God does not make mistakes. He knows perfectly how to deal with us. So it's not just the pocket knife sin that David is talking about here, but it's really deep life-altering sin that he committed. This is sin that he wants to keep hidden, sin that has been festering, sin that is like a steam, steam building up in a pot, ready to, to burst out of his soul. This psalm is, is not the perfect picture of how to bring your sin to God. Uh, David makes mistakes in this psalm, and he actually recognizes it, and we'll see that. But it is a perfect reminder that there is no sin too great that we cannot bring to God. So I want you to hear this encouragement for us this evening, that in your darkest moments, pour yourselves out before God, because Christ was poured out for you. I want you to go into a room, shut a door, and pour out your hearts before him. That's what we're called to in this psalm. So we're going to follow David's actions. We're going to see what we can learn from him. And we're going to learn these things. First, we're going to see him bottling up his sin. Second, we're going to see the sin burst out. And then thirdly, we're going to watch David bow before the Lord. So I don't always keep all my points beginning with the same letter. But these happen to fall this way. So bottling up, bursting out, and bowing down. So bottling up. So before we get into verse 1... In this text, we need to understand the nature of David's affliction here. And if we understand what he's wrestling with, I think that, that we can gain insight into how this text holds together. So I want you to look at verses 1, verses 8, verse 8, and verse 11. So in verse 1, David is concerned with his sin. In verse 8, David repents of his sin. And then in verse 11, David asks for relief for uh, God's rebuke of his sin. So I'm convinced that what David's struggling with in this passage is not 
a disease or illness or an interpersonal issue or some outside force as, it, as much as it is his own sin. That's the main driving force of this psalm. David's wrestling with his sin in, in verses 1 to 3 rather than go to God like he does in verse 7. In verses 1 to 3, he bottles it. He keeps it in. He's afraid of sinning even more, verse 1, so he remains silent that I may not sin with my tongue. David knows he needs to bring his problems before the Lord to God, but he isn't there yet, and we're not given clarity why, why he's keeping it. Maybe he's afraid, maybe it feels too overwhelming. For whatever reason, he keeps silent, he bottles it up, and my guess is that you have been here too. Because I I know I've been here. That you have some sin plaguing you, bringing you down, maybe something pervasive, maybe something that's been going on for a long time in your life, Maybe it's an addiction or some sin from the past. Maybe it's something recently that just happened and it just feels too dirty, too messy, and it just feels easier to ignore it, so I bottle it. And you think, maybe if I ignore this thing, maybe if I don't talk about it, it'll just get better. Uh, And this is what David does, and we know this isn't good because he tells us in the text it was not good, right? Verse 2, he says, my distress grew worse. You see that? So look, this passage is full of things that David does that we should not imitate. And this is one of them. The longer you hold on to sin, the worse it will get. Now it's interesting because he says in verse 1 that it isn't just, um, he isn't just silent for the sake of his, himself, but for the wicked. So that is, remember, the category of wicked in the Psalms is people that don't know Jesus, or in this time, Yahweh, as their Savior. Um, so he's in the presence of some wicked people, and he, he puts a muzzle on his mouth, is the language in the text. So my dad uh, has to muzzle his dogs. He lives in Mount Lebanon, close together with, the, with other neighbors, They're, and he has beagles. Um, and he has to muzzle them because the, the neighbors complain about beagles barking. And by muzzling them, my dad makes it seem like we have quiet dogs. But we don't. They're beagles. Of course, beagles bark. That's what they do. Beagles bark, and hear this, believers sin. So David thinks muzzling himself before the wicked will solve his problem, covering it up. Again, he makes clear later in this text that these actions are unhelpful. It makes me think and consider not just the way we can be afraid to deal with our own sin, but how do I deal with my sin in front of people that aren't Christians? How do I handle my sin in their presence? Do I remain silent and pretend that I have no sin? Do I muzzle the dog, so to speak? Verses 2 to 3, it says it just gets worse, and he's about to burst, and clearly answers, no, that's not the way we handle it. We don't muzzle it. We don't bottle it. As we will see in verses 7 to 10, whether you're, you're afraid of dealing with your sin or afraid of others seeing your sin, the answer is the same. It's repentance. It's repentance. That the longer you bottle sin, the worse it'll get, whether it's in front of people who don't know you, or who don't know God as their Savior, or if it's in your own heart. It'll grow worse. We can actually argue here that there is some value in non-Christians, in showing non-Christians real Christianity, as they see us confess. That we aren't hiding our sin, but we're constantly coming to God in repentance. In fact, we did it today during our time of confession. We do it every week. It's easy to miss if, you, if, you're, uh, if you're used to it. 
So if you're here today and you're a seeker of Jesus, but not yet sold on him, there's actually an invitation here for you. I want you to see true Christianity isn't a bunch of people who are are pretending to be perfect and having everything put together. True Christianity is broken and sinful people screaming to the world that we are desperately in need of the forgiveness of God every hour of every day of our lives. Imagine, brothers and sisters in Christ, so now I'm speaking to you, if the world saw more and more Christians not bottling their sin, but constantly seeking forgiveness and repentance, faith in Christ, and I include myself in this. So maybe let this begin to challenge your hearts as we move through this text. For non-Christians, did you notice that we confess sin today in this service? That we're saying that Christians are not perfect, but God is perfect. And for Christians or non-Christians, it's pretty clear. Are you bottling up sin? Are there things that have been gnawing at you for a long time that need to get out? Are there closets that are shut that need to be opened? Are there dark corners of your heart that long for sunlight? Can you see that repentance is not just a benefit to yourself as a Christian, but even a witness of the truth of the light of Jesus Christ in a dark world? And yet, we see that David takes the worst path, as we all can at times. And his bottling actually turns into anger. Verse 3. My heart became hot within me. That's a common expression in the Old Testament for anger. As I mused, the fire burned, and then I spoke with my tongue. David loses control, and what is bottled up comes bursting out. And it comes out in an ugly way. And we're going to look at this bursting out with David. So that we take a dark turn in the text here. Um, and I actually believe that what David is about to say, many of us have experienced. This is more common than you think. Verse 4, he bursts, O Lord, make me know my end. And what is the measure of my days? Let me know how fleeting I am. So what is David saying? He's saying that his sin has caused him such distress that if he could just know how long he is going to live, that he could look forward to his death. David's wishing to die. And again, perhaps, maybe you've been here. And I know that some of you have, because we've sat down and talked about it. But let me be clear as I can be here. It is wrong for David to desire death as a way to escape his problems. It is sinful for David to desire death as a way to escape his problems. But it is so right that David brings these sinful desires to the Lord. Scripture is clear that to desire suicide is sinful. It falls within the realm of murder, and God forbids murder. But I want to encourage you, if you've fallen into despair, if you've had thoughts similar to David here, thoughts of dying, which is more common than you think, there are two encouragements for us in this text. First, the very fact that this is a psalm in the Bible means that this is a psalm that we're to sing. It means that this, God gives In this, God gives you a voice for you to come with him, if these have been your feelings. God knows your fears, he knows our wrong desires, and he actually meets you there, and he gives you a voice to sing your despair before him. So it is right and good to sing this song 
to God. God wants, so this is my second point, God wants you to bring your messiness to him. Remember, it was bad for David to keep sin bottled up, but it is good when David's moved to bursting that he bursts in the right direction, right? He comes to God with the messiness. And I know God meets him because the promises of Jesus hold fast, right? Jesus says, come to me, all who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy, my burden is light, and you will find rest for your souls. Matthew 11. So I have a friend who's in the midst of deep despair um, with feelings of taking his life. And he cried out to God. He said, I hate you. I hate you. Now, of course, that's not how we want to come to God, right? But can you see the grace in what he was doing? He may have been telling God he hated him, but at least he was still going to God in prayer, right? Again, for those of you who are not Christians in the room, I want you to see raw Christianity. Real Christianity. Not making ourselves out to be perfect and then coming to God, but coming to Him at the lowest, worst moments of our lives. So John Calvin says it this way. He says, No man looks to God for the purpose of depending upon Him and resting his hope in Him until he is made to feel his own frailty, yea, and even come to nothing. So let me explain it another way. The worst thing, that we can do is not come to God. Even if we come in a messy way, the worst thing we could do is not to come to God at all. Maybe this is you. Maybe you have been burned in the past by someone or even the church. But hear this. The worst thing we can do is not go to our Heavenly Father. I was listening to um, this church uh, planning podcast um, by Gimlet Media called Startup. And... um, It's worth listening to, it's interesting, and I'm going to spoil the end for you, okay? So I apologize, but it's worth it. So on the last episode of this church planning podcast, the narrator, the journalist interviewing this Acts 29 uh, church planner, the, the interviewer himself, this journalist, begins to wrestle with his own faith as he walks this man through his uh, church planning. Um, The interview, the journalist thought he was a Christian, but he hadn't been to a church in over a year, and he began to question, did I ever really have faith? And on the last episode, he goes on this retreat with a church planner whose name's AJ. Um, And it's a retreat in which he would meditate for um, six hours. So AJ would meditate, and the journalist would meditate. And he told the journalist to think about why he left the church. And as he approaches this time with God, he does so, the journalist, with great fear. And he says his palms begin to become sweaty, and, and when he tries to meditate, he gets distracted. But about hour five, he remembers why he left the church. And he remembers this story that happened at the same time. He's, he remembers this time where he was a boy, and he got, or no, where he, there was a boy who got caught in a tide. Okay, so the, the boy was drowning, and the journalist jumps in to save him this boy, but he gets stuck. And he can't rescue the boy. And so then all of a sudden, he's trying to, the journalist is fighting for his own life, and someone else, he sees someone else jump in and and rescue the the boy. They get out. But then the journalist realizes, I'm going to die. I can't get out. This is how people die. And then he says, this blonde leathery man with flippers jumps in and rescues him. 
And the journalist remembers how helpless he felt in that moment and how utterly dependent he was on this man. And he says that's why he left the church. Because he wasn't ready to be that dependent on God. That's what he says anyway in the podcast. And as I was listening, I kind of yelled to the podcast out loud. It's not that you're not ready to depend on God. It's that you're not ready to give him your sin. But obviously he didn't hear me. So basically by the end of the podcast, the journalist recognizes I'm not a Christian. That he'd rather hold on to his sin than bringing it to God. So there's both an encouragement and a warning for us as we consider this text. The encouragement is this. That you have no reason to fear coming to God with your sin. None at all. God knows your sin. He knows your brokenness. He knows your weakness and he makes provision for it. You have no reason to fear because God knows your hearts and he promises to meet you and forgive you if you give that sin over to him. He gives you a psalm like this for you to pray in the darkest moments of your life. But there's also a warning. There is no good reason for you to wait to bring your sin to God. You do have a reason to fear not going to him, like the journalist. If you keep your sin from him, if you do not confess, then like the journalist, your palms become sweaty. And the whole idea of approaching God becomes abhorrent. And so David bursts, but he bursts in the right direction. And that's my encouragement to you. That it's messy. It is a messy thing that we deal with. But we have a gracious God. But David doesn't end there. He moves from bottling to bursting to then bowing. We're going to look at that. Verse 7 begins, And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. And you have to ask, what does David mean when he says, For what do I wait? What is it that he's waiting for? You see, David was connecting in verse 4 his desire to die with verses 5 to 6, how fleeting life is. His argument against God was essentially this. Because life is short, because it's a hand breath, which is a tiny measurement in in ancient uh, Israel, because life is so short, why do you make me suffer? If this is all I have, God, why are you causing me suffering? Why not just know my end? And then the answer, verse 7, is this, that David should not just keep waiting around for death, but verse 7, my hope isn't in this life. It's in you. My hope is in you. You see, when David recognizes that his hope is in God, who forgives sin, he avoids the trap. So Calvin talked, John Calvin talks about the trap like this, that if you have great success in life, If you have great vitality, if you think you are so strong that you will be prone to forget that life is but a handbreadth, this life is precious. And it is here today and it is gone tomorrow. Like grass withering. You'll forget to realize that we are far weaker than we can understand. But in the opposite way, if here like David, if you bottle sin and you're constantly falling into despair, and you think all of life is vanity, vanity of vanity. I mean, you can see David was in Ecclesiastes here, right? Then you think too little of the time that God has given you on this earth. There's a third way that the meaning of life comes 
when you recognize along with David that there is a greater hope outside of your circumstances, whether great or in the pits of despair, and that hope you, find, you will find in the living God. You hope you will find if you recognize that God is my life. The only way we can begin to have eyes to see this kind of hope is if we can begin to confess our sin. So this is what David does, verse 8. He says, deliver me from my transgressions. Brothers and sisters, I mentioned earlier that it can feel scary to bring our sin to him. It can feel messy, too dark to come before him, but here David gets it right. We've seen him get it wrong, here he gets it right. He pours himself out before God. He lays his sin before the Father. And you see David surrenders in verses 9 to 10. Earlier he was silent for the wrong reason, but now he is silent because he's recognizing the harshness of his earlier words. Verse 10, he's tired of fighting against God. The text says, I am spent by the hostility of your hand. He greatly cries in verses 11 to 13 for God to remove the discipline from him. Verse 13, to look away from him. Now, this whole sermon is not about discipline, but it's worth talking a little bit about discipline here. David is saying in these last verses that because he has repented, he wants the Lord to remove the discipline from him. Essentially, David's asking for mercy. Lord, I've confessed, remove this discipline from me. So Hebrews 12 enlightens this passage for us. It says this, I'll just read it to you. Hebrews 12, 7, It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are left illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best for them, like my father, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. This is exactly what we are seeing here in David. David knows he's being disciplined because of his sin, and it is hard to love God for David in the midst of it. Again, David falls back into a messy response. Verse 13, Look away from me, that I may smile again. He doesn't want God to leave him entirely. That's not what David is saying in this text. He wants the discipline to be removed. And in that moment, he uses pretty harsh language to describe it. He's saying to God that he just wants to feel good again. And that God's presence, his discipline, is too much. And brothers and sisters, haven't we all been there? I just want to feel good again, God. But I want you to remember what we just read in Hebrews, the very end of that, that passage. In Hebrews, uh, in the 11th verse. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been trained by it. You need to hear that God loves you now so that when he disciplines you later, you can respond knowing that he does it because he loves you. That although it's painful, it is done with the deepest of love. So for example, boy does it hurt my soul when I have to discipline my toddler. To see him cry when we say no, there are times that can make me cry. Um, but I do it because I love him. Sometimes it's for his safety. A lot of times it's for his safety with toddlers. 
And he doesn't know it. He thinks I'm hurting him. And so he cries. So I know what you're thinking. How do I know I'm being disciplined for sin? Or am I being punished by God? And I want to end on this point because I think this is actually where the gospel really shines out of a passage of lament. First, hear this. You sin far more than you realize. I do too. We, you, I, are far worse sinners than we realize. And we sin far more often than we know. But Psalm 103, which I preached on a while ago, tells us that God is gracious. He doesn't treat us according to our sin. He doesn't repay us according to our iniquities. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Meaning that the discipline we we receive is not meant to destroy us. It's meant to restore us. We deserve far worse than we receive. But second, because we deserve far worse than we receive, God didn't just make what we deserve disappear. Someone had to pay for that. What we actually deserve. And that punishment we deserve, not discipline, but punishment was not put on us. That was put on his son, our savior. Jesus took that punishment. Jesus bore the true depths of our sin. And these are depths that you and I and David will never see because Christ bore them on the cross. He took them and he stood in our place. And if you get this, that the God of the world, God of heavens and the earth and the universe and all things, loved you so much that he gave his son for you to take that punishment, then this humbles you. It brings you down. That we don't run to God in fear. We run to him as a child runs to his father when he's sick. Because he knows his father's good. And he loves him. He knows his dad will forgive him. And this is the way that we as children, if you're a child here, should go to our parents. Because they love you. Brothers and sisters, the reality is that sometimes we do know when we are, we are under God's discipline because we're actively sinning and we're aware of it. But sometimes we don't know. We're learning that there's some sin that we have and that we're under discipline. The Christian life is one of this constant movement. God revealing every day the depth of our sin and every day the height of his grace. So I don't want you to focus so much on am I under sin or am I under discipline or am I not under discipline because Hear this, we're all sinners. And to one degree or another, we're all under the discipline of God. But I want you to focus on this. Would you come quick to the Father with your sin? Don't bottle it up. And if you do bottle it up, it is far better for you to burst in a messy direction towards God than to not come at all. And lastly, would you receive with grace and thankfulness the forgiveness through Jesus Christ by submitting yourself to him? By bowing down. Jesus poured himself out for you on the cross so you can come to him in prayer and pour yourself out before him. Let's go to Lord in prayer.